everyone. Welcome back to another episode of How to Live the Podcast. We are your hosts, Jess and Steph Dadon, and we're actually coming to you from bed this morning. We sure are, and that is why we love podcasting, because we can do it from anywhere. So we hope you are having an amazing week so far. We have some exciting stuff planned for our week this week. We're actually launching our new second half of the collection for Tubes this Friday. So Tubes lovers, keep an eye out because mm. some pretty feet treats coming your way. I'm particularly excited because a few of my favorite styles feature in this second drop. I've been wearing them everywhere around Melbourne and I can't even tell you how many people are coming up to me and complimenting me, asking what the brand is. And I am so freaking excited when I get to tell them it is mine. Oh my God. Is there anything better than when someone compliments something that you made that you are wearing? It's honestly the best feeling ever. Um, Speaking of fashion, today we have a very- Nice segue. I know, right? Thanks. We have a really exciting fashion episode for you today, which all of you fashion lovers out there are just going to eat up. Absolutely. Um, so today on the podcast, we have the incredible Fern Malice. This is an episode that we actually did while we were in the US. And a bit of background for you, we actually met Fern a few years ago when she was in town for Melbourne Fashion Festival or VAMF as we like to call it. And um, we were super intimidated by her. We kind of went up and tried to network and then we actually bumped into her at New York Fashion Week a couple years later, tried to network again. And so like we've just like slowly gotten our way in there and when we emailed her saying we're going to be in the US and she said she was keen to do the podcast, we were so excited. Totally. So she is known as the godmother of New York Fashion Week. You'll find out why soon. She was the executive director of the Council of Fashion Designers of America from 1991 to 2001. Which is just a fancy way of saying CFDA and you guys might know CFDA from the like star-studded fashion award ceremonies they throw each year. Totally. So while she was at the CFDA, she actually created a centralized New York Fashion Week, which is so freaking cool. She's like the founder of Fashion Week. It's so cool. And then she went on to be president of IMG Fashion for a decade. So she's pretty freaking incredible. She is. So we got to sit down with Fern actually in her office in the Upper East Side in New York. And it was quite a treat to sit down with Fern. She has some incredible stories about really the beginning of the fashion industry in New York um, when she used to hang out with her family in Brooklyn and see it all get made. And she's really seen the rise of fashion in America as we know it. If you Google her name, you will literally get pictures of her with every celebrity ever. Like It's crazy. We're talking Oprah, Michelle Obama, like all of our favorites, Iris Apfel. It's absolutely nuts. And actually she had to rush off at the end of the interview because she was going to hang out with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, just casually. Just cash. So stick around to the end of the episode to find out who's on next week. It, <laughs> In case you can't tell, I'm smiling because it's unbelievable. In the meantime, enjoy Fern. Here she is. <laughs> So we actually met you when you were in Melbourne many years ago. I think you were doing a talk at RMIT University yep, there. That's right. Yeah, so cool. It was cool. just when my book came out. Ah, oh, we were looking at your book. So amazing. You've just met so many incredible people. 
Very cool. There have been about 30 other interviews since that book came out. Oh, really? So there may be a new book coming yes. then. That's what yes. I'm feeling. Yes. Cool. So did you come to Melbourne through VAMP, through Graham Lucy? Yep. Oh, awesome. We love the I fashion. I knew Graham week. very well when when we were doing the regular Australian Fashion oh, yeah, Week. Oh, yeah, of course. Oh, because he was with in IMG. Sydney. Yeah, I, yeah, I was funny. with IMG and we acquired that property. And how did the Melbourne Festival compare on like a global stage to you? You know, I love the Melbourne Festival because it's a consumer-driven festival. Mm. And I think that that's what ultimately all these Fashion Weeks are turning into anyway. But they did it focused on that way ahead of anybody else. And I remember always telling everybody in New York, we need to do one that is just consumer-driven. So clothes, buy now, wear now, go into the stores, generate business. Yeah. And, you know, Melbourne's been doing it all along. So bravo to them. Yeah, yeah. that's what we always say we love about it too. Like, because it feels like everyone goes to such an effort because you are there for kind of the customer rather than like the buyer, which like I feel like you can tell there's like that added level of – over the topness. Yeah, like they, the designers put in a lot of effort because they're putting on a show for customers. Yeah, 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 and it's changing. The audience is changing now. There's not all those many retailers and editors in the front row anymore. Totally. You know, it was bloggers, now it's influencers and who knows what and people are buying from their Instagram posts. Yes, definitely. And we'd love to chat to you about like the changing industry and things because we're sure you have so many awesome opinions on that. But we thought we would start by bringing it back to you and why you kind of fell in love with fashion in the first place. Do you have like a first fashion memory or like something where you were like, I'm totally hooked here. Like this is it for me? No, I don't think there was an aha moment in my life that way. I grew up in New York City in Brooklyn. My dad worked in the garment district in scarves and accessories, and he had two brothers who worked in the industry in sportswear and textiles. So I grew up around that. I always went to work on days off from school and holidays to see what he was doing and walk through the garment center with him and have lunch and see all the hustle and bustle that is a district in New York. And at that time, it was very robust with all the hand carts and clothing and bolts of fabric running in and out of trucks and streets. Now all of that's been outsourced to mm. Bangladesh and Vietnam and everywhere else in China. So you don't see the products being made and moved as much as you used to. But I mean, I guess the combination of that was my, uh, I mean, I just loved it. Yeah, and yeah. Everybody on the street knew each other. Every, you know, it was a very friendly industry. So it was kind of like in your blood from the get-go, it sounds so, like. Yeah. It sounds like an incredible time. Like it's pretty cool that you have experienced like the fashion industry in that way to now it just must be so totally different. It sure is, like everything else in the world. Yeah, yeah totally. So were there any fashion icons that you really looked up to when you were growing up? No, when I was growing up, I mean, I wasn't really aware. I mean, designers weren't famous names. I grew up early on when the designers were the hidden source behind a label. You know, there were all these different company names and you didn't even know who designed the stuff. Mm. Not until years later did people like Calvin Klein come out on the label. And Bill Blass was one of the first big American designers who used to design for a company called Maurice Retina. And it was Maurice Ret Bill Blass for Maurice Retina. I mean, nobody cared about Maurice Retina. Mm. You know, and then eventually it just became Bill Blass on the label. And that's kind of when CFDA, the Council of Fashion Designers of America, was formed back in the 60s to promote the talent in American designers. And everything started to change then. 
So for you, how did you get into the fashion industry? You'd obviously been experiencing it for so long with your family, but how did you, what were your first? I won a contest, actually. No way. Absolutely. I won a contest when I was in college with Mademoiselle Magazine, which was one of Condé Nast's leading magazines for smart women. It was about poetry and literature and fashion and business and just had everything and had the smartest, best editorial staff of any of the magazines. To this day, all those people have gone on to extraordinary other jobs. But they had a contest called a Guest Editor, Mademoiselle's Guest Editors, which was very well known. And every year they would pick 20 college students from a big pool of people who entered. And you would come to New York for the month of June and help be a guest editor. I was the guest art editor and edit the what well, was actually the August-September issue, like the back-to-college issue, when stores and companies did big back-to-college promotions for clothing. Mm-hmm. Now it's, you know, get another pair of jeans and a hoodie and you've <laughs> got a new wardrobe for college. Mm-hmm. So it was a very interesting time, and I was one of those 20. Today, if they had that contest, it would be a reality TV show. Oh, for sure. You know, with 20 crazy girls living in some fancy apartment, you know, totally. vying for the job and the boyfriend. That show. <laughs> yeah, that would be a great show. And then I was the only one of my 20 that was offered a full-time job at the magazine after that. Amazing. So that was kind of like your first big break into yeah. the industry. And I worked there for six years. So cool. And then looking at what you were doing there, there aren't as many competitions and things like that to get into the fashion industry. Is there any advice that you have for younger people wanting to get into the fashion industry now? Well, I mean, I'm surrounded by young people who always want to get into the industry. I mean, you go to Fashion Week or any fashion events, and I'm on the board at FIT, on the foundation board, and I care very much about students and creating opportunities. But there are so many opportunities. And you know, now with the technology and with the computer and iPhone and what have you, you just have to do your homework. Find out where do you really want to want to be? What's your passion? And just keep going out for it. I mean, so much of it is luck and timing. Mm. You know, I've spent my life in business and always would get resumes sent to me all the time. You know, and I'd sometimes open them up. I'd print them, put them on a pile. Sometimes look at them, throw them out, not care. You know, and then all of a sudden somebody would say when I was in a busy office, so-and-so just gave a resignation and is leaving. And I'd say, oh, wait a minute. We just got a resume from somebody. Yeah. It's such a timing thing. You never know. So you've got to just keep, you know, no doesn't always mean no. No, no, no until it means yes. Totally. And and it's the squeaky wheel gets oiled. Sometimes you be pester somebody enough because you really want to be there and you really want to work for this person. You know, you go, okay, let's meet them. I know sometimes when you're in that situation, it feels like you might be annoying or, you know, you don't want to be like too Pushy. desperate yeah. or whatever it might be. But you're so right. If I'm like thinking about stories that I've heard and even people wanting to work with us, it's just because they're so damn persistent. You're like, OK, well, they really want it. So like, let's meet them yeah, and have a chat. Absolutely. So you were talking about the CFDA before. How did you end up working with them? I had just finished a job where I was the senior vice president of advertising and marketing for a big design center, which was about the home furnishings and contract furnishings industry. I always loved the fashion industry because I had many jobs before that. After the Mademoiselle, I was a fashion director of a department store. I'd worked on 7th Avenue and wholesale in a showroom. And, you know, fashion is in your DNA. It's in your blood. And I went to a big AIDS benefit that was called 7th on Sale that the CFDA had finally done to raise money in 1994 for everybody we knew who was dying of AIDS. 
And, uh, you know, after that benefit, the CFDA, which had a president that was a designer named Carolyn Rome and one executive director and, and an office that was in a designer showroom and then an office not much bigger than the area we're sitting in, everything stopped. They raised a lot of money from this benefit, but the staff was depleted. There was nobody running the show. And so they were looking for a new director. And I read about that in the Women's Wear Daily, the trade paper every day. And finally, I just, at the last minute, I said, I'm going to throw my hat in the ring for that. And I called some friends who told me, you know, oh, oh my God, why didn't we think of that? You know, they said, call Donna Karen. I said, Donna's not going to take my call. I mean, mm-hmm. she doesn't know who I am. And and then I sent a resume. I was told who to send it to. They called me immediately and said, when can you come in? And I came in like the two days later, I think. And I was like the end of the line. They had interviewed about 30, 40 people. They had hundreds of resumes. They had their five finalists. And I became the sixth finalist and came in and met with Calvin Klein and Bill Blass, who I mentioned, and a few other designers who were the committee. You know, and they said, why should we hire you? You haven't been in fashion in 10 years. And I said, I never stopped wearing clothes. <laughs> and, they, and I said, you know, I never stopped shopping. I never stopped looking at magazines. And, you know, we talked about a bunch of things. And I had all the component parts they were looking for. PR, marketing, I was raising money for AIDS, which was important already to the organization. And I was hired. I love that story. I love that, you know, you were already like quite far along in your career, but you just kind of had those same insecurities that everybody does at every point along the way. And you still kind of had to like battle for your place. Yeah. You always have to keep reinventing and moving on and shifting gears. Mm. And then look how well it turned out, really. So that <laughs> yeah, was a great it's been one. okay. <laughs> <laughs> so what ultimately gave you the idea to come up with this centralized New York Fashion Week? Well, as I said, I was selected for the job at CFDA, but I hadn't started yet. And Michael Kors had a show that week, and it was in an empty loft space in Chelsea, raw concrete space. And when you turn the bass music on at a fashion show, it's pretty loud and things start to shake and tremble. In this case, the ceiling shook and trembled and chunks of plaster came down on the shoulders of Cindy, Linda, Naomi, the one-name supermodels. They brushed it off, but when the plaster landed on the laps of the editors in the front row, very significant editors, including Susie Menkes from the International Mm -hmm. Tribune, they wrote, we live for fashion, we don't want to die for it. And I said, I think that my job description just changed. And it became a mission to find centralized, modernized venues for the fashion shows to happen. And it was a good year and a half of meetings, searching, finding things, raising the money, getting everything done, and coalescing the industry into Tents and Bryant Park. I think that shows so much about your like creative thinking and that like, you know, you saw the roof coming down and most people would just be like, oh, like he just should have had it in like a a nicer, newer building, you know, but you were like, oh, this is an opportunity opportunity. here to like really revolutionize something that no one had thought of before, which is cool. And we were the first fashion week that had corporate sponsors and made that work to our benefit and And that changed the model around the world pretty much. And so what steps did you take to really get this to be a highlight on the global fashion calendar? Was it having the CFDA behind you that really allowed that? Definitely the premature of the CFDA as the organization. And it worked because we had terrific designers who were all participating. And we made it convenient and easy. We registered people. We reached out to the global press. We knew what hotels they were staying in, so their invitations would get there when they arrived in New York. We made it organized. Before that, they didn't know if they'd only got an invitation from one designer, they weren't going to make a trip over. Now, 
they were able to see what was happening on a, a much larger scale and make these trips and travel worthwhile. Well, this is a trip that we've made a bunch of times now in our career, so we would like to say thank you for mm-hmm. creating oh, this and getting it all in one Yeah, we actually, um, a dream of ours when we were at school was always to come to New York Fashion Week. So when Jess turned 18, we came with our mum. We travelled to, it was still in Lincoln Square then. We hustled our way into some shows. Yeah, don't even know how we found ourselves with tickets because we were just students and we just emailed some designers. Yeah, you just got to hustle and yeah. push, you know, and you be surprised how you get in yeah exactly we definitely have some funny stories of how we've gotten into fashion week we'll save those for another time (laughs) Um, the security has told me there are people who came up and said they were me going to shows oh really (laughs) we've heard you kind of talk more lately about this idea of fashion week and how times have changed with Instagram and the internet and email and all of those things that maybe, you know, it could be an opportunity for the concept to be rethought. Can you tell us a bit more about that and whether you have any ideas? I have some ideas, but, you know, I I just think it's the kind of time that everything needs to be reevaluated and re-looked at. The shows are all over the place now. IMG still has a central location downtown at a place called Spring Studios. Not sure how much longer they're going to have that location. There aren't great locations in New York to do multiple shows, Mm. so that's a problem. And this season, people had shows up in Harlem and then had to go to the middle of Brooklyn, which is a 15-minute drive to get there. And that's a show that's one right after another. Mm. So, I mean, the industry needs to sit down together with a lot of players. I think Tom Ford's now the president of the CFDA, this chairman. And, you know, he's going to have to look at that with the CFDA and their membership because they do one calendar, but there are three calendars and lots of other shows that aren't included in that. So I think everybody's looking for somebody to put a bigger umbrella over the concept and figure that out. You know, and there's a lot of live streaming and, you know, and everybody's questioning who's in the audience. What are we spending that money for? Is it about just getting a million likes on Instagram? And is that selling the clothes? I don't know. People have to ask the questions and figure that out. Luckily, I did what I did. I don't need to do it again. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You've already found it at once. You don't need to reinvent it. Nice. Leave it to someone else. And I think that's just industries in general right now. Like everything is kind of finding this new place of do we chase a million likes or do we chase integrity and, and doing something really. Right. It's a real question right now. Yeah. You know, is everything just what you see on your phone and is that real? I mean, Instagram is great, but I'm not sure how real all of it is. Mm. I mean, everybody's happy on Instagram. And I don't think everybody's happy. Yeah, yeah, totally. That's something we talk a lot about. Because mm-hmm. we used to be those happy people on Instagram that mm. weren't so happy. Now <laughs> we're just real life happy though. So it's it's much better right. this way. Well, good for you. If you're real life happy, um, that's that's great. Yeah, but not on Instagram anymore. You're that's, not on Instagram anymore? Not real. We don't post a lot on Instagram and we definitely don't post those happy snaps that take three hours to get, you know, like and Facebook and stuff. What, what social media do you do? We do like this is kind of like our forum for it, like the podcast. It's kind of like what we were doing for so many years reimagined because we were like, we really want to have honest, open conversation about things like exactly what we're talking about right now. And we felt like a platform where you could only share photos wasn't necessarily the right place to do it, which has been a really cool transition for us. Good. So I think like the industry can feel like it's a bit hard to crack for like those emerging designers. Do you feel like there's like a place for emerging designers at Fashion Week's? Absolutely. I think Fashion Week is always about emerging designers. And I think there needs to be a little bit more communication about some of these emerging designers and who they are and why 
why you should make a trip to see them and why you should not blow them off because you never heard of their name. But that's what Fashion Week's about. It's a platform giving everybody a chance to put their vision and their dream out there for people to see and react to. When I was running Fashion Week, we always had a smaller venue for new designers and tried to get shows underwritten all the time with sponsors to give them a chance. You know, now it's a little harder because there's so much competition, but, you know, there's still plenty of places that happily giving up free clubs and free venues and, you know, models who are friends who are willing to walk for these designers. And they do need to spend a few bucks to have some professional PR people so that's not complete chaos, Mm. you know, and to communicate and follow up on everything that they've produced and seen. You know, but there's also a lot of emerging designers that probably aren't ready to emerge and should probably be working for somebody else. You know, I mean, after Project Runway became a phenomena, I think everybody thought, okay, I could sew two things together. I could be a designer. Totally. It's a hard business and it needs a real team. It real needs financing. It needs a couple of years worth of money in the bank. It needs somebody who understands business, dollars and cents, production, shipping, ordering. It's not just, oh, I have a vision on designing this and put it on a pretty girl. You need to make it. You need to know when you could deliver it. You need to know what the labor costs to make it happen. And you learn that if you're working for a bigger company where all of those elements are automatic. Yeah, totally. We have a shoe label as well. And like often I think to myself, are we working in fashion or are we working in logistics? Sometimes it can feel like that. It's a whole part of it. You have so many incredible accolades. When we were reading about your background and all the amazing things you've achieved, we just couldn't believe it. In 2012, you received the Fashion Industry Lifetime Achievement Award from the Pratt Institute. You judged on Project Runway. The list is never ending. So we were really interested to ask you, like looking back on all these achievements and your lifetime of experiencing these incredible things, what are the things in life now that are the most important to you? That's a good question. I mean, I still like what I do. I still like the discovery of new things and meeting creative people people, but I want to find more time to spend with my, I'm not married and don't have children, but I have nieces who have the most adorable, fabulous little children, two that are in LA and two here in New York. And it's important to spend more time with them. Their grandmom, who would have been my younger sister, passed away. So I feel a a huge, not responsibility, but it is a responsibility, but a a want to be there for all of them. Mm. And, you know, and you get to a certain age, you know, I I don't want to work as hard as I used to, but I like being out there and I like giving back where and when I can. So, I mean, I still have to work, but I want to spend more time doing that. I want, I have a great house in the country on a lake, you know, that I go to on weekends. I'd like my weekends to be longer. (laughs) Same. Yeah. (laughs) I love to hear you say all that because I think, you know, that's something that millennials are kind of introducing more now is like, we want those things now, you know, like we want to do what's really important in life. Yeah, working is important, but also like spending time with family and enjoying life. We had a feeling you might say that, but we were interested because maybe you were just going to say, you know, like working and fashion and living and breathing, that is the most important thing. No, it's not. (laughs) Yeah. You have had such a massive influence on this entire industry and, you know, we have a lot of things that we're passionate about and we want to advocate for and, you know, so many people want to have influence nowadays and influence people to care about the things they care about. What about you and the things that you've done do you think made you so well placed to have such a massive influence? I mean, I'm not sure how to answer that exactly. 
how can we be like Fern? That's mm. all we want to know. <laughs> no, you don't want to be like Fern. You want to be like you. I mean, one of the things that I spent a lot of time working on and for many years was raising money for AIDS because it was important. And friends were dying left and right and going to three memorial services a week. So you have to find a way with the work you do to pay attention to the causes that matter. And that was very important to me and, and still is. And when I was at CFDA, I luckily had the benefit of the breadth and width of the membership to rally them for causes. You know, we did Fashion Target's breast cancer and raised millions and millions of dollars worldwide, including in Australia. And we worked with Sarah, um, the model who's oh, married to the oh, Murdoch. Sarah O'Hare. Sarah, Sarah O'Hare. And then yeah. maybe she changed to Murdoch, Sarah Murdoch. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Sarah was our poster girl in Australia. I came and we met with prime ministers and we met with everybody and worked with the breast cancer organizations there and raised a lot of money in Australia, as well as in the UK and in Brazil, millions of dollars, even built a, a wing of a hospital in Sao Paulo for breast cancer Wow! based on a blue target t-shirt that was the focus of the campaign. So, you know, those things are really terrific to do. Now, I moderate a bunch of different panels and discussions about sustainability you know, I can't say I'm a poster child for this, but I do really appreciate and understand how important that is right now. And if there's one cause that every millennial should just attach themselves to, it's about how we start asking the right questions, you know, about where clothing is made, how it's made, how toxic are the dyes in your denim jeans, how much water is used to make this, how much clothing do we need? That's the biggest challenge in the industry. There's too much clothing out there. There's too much stuff and there's no place to get rid of it. Getting rid of clothing has become a massive problem. You know, filling landfills, things that don't disintegrate, and, you know, using fibers and fabrics that are harmful to the environment. You know, I mean, all of this, these millennials are going to grow up in this world, you know, and want to have clean water and want to be able to not live in the fear of hurricanes and tornadoes and typhoons and tsunamis and things that are all affected by the climate, which is affected by all the things that the fashion industry is involved with. Mm -hmm. The shipping and transporting of clothing, the amount of plastic bags and things. Oh, that yeah. it, I mean, it's massive. Yeah, it is. And also I was thinking, because I was hearing on the TV earlier, they were talking about like, what about the next generation? But it's like, what about humanity and the thousands of generations after that? We're just talking about one generation right now, but... The rest of the world. Yeah. Totally. You look back at history, you know, from dinosaurs that are gone to Mayan cultures that are gone and Roman cult things that were the most important creative universes, gone, gone, gone. I mean, things end. You know, none of us want to think that our society and our world is going to end the way it is, but, you know, and I don't want to be that kind of doom and gloom, but, you know, there is an opportunity to make some changes, and I'm guilty sitting here holding a plastic bottle of water and mm -hmm. I should have it in a, you know, in a bigger container. Yeah, we need big changes to come. And that's something that, you know, for us, it's like such a big thing. Yeah, look, being in footwear and we manufacture in China and going over there and seeing the industry over there, you know, sustainability is something we're always thinking about. Our shoes are actually vegan. So, you know, animals were something that like were really high on our priority list. We just weren't going to make fashion out of them. But yeah, like where do you even begin with the whole sustainability journey is just like this whole big thing left to tackle now as well. It's mm. a very good book. Dana Thomas just published called Fashionopolis. Oh, okay. Check it out. Writing okay. that down. Awesome, for sure. So hearing you talk as well, like it's very clear that you have such a big heart and you care about so many things. Where does that spirit of giving back 
come from within you? Is it something like your parents instilled in you? Is it just something that you've always had a pull towards? No, I think, I mean, my parents were as generous as they could be. They didn't really have extra funds to be, you know, philanthropists. I would love to have philanthropists on my business card. I don't quite have the wherewithal to add that at the moment. We had you down as a philanthropist. Okay, thank you. I'll I'll take it from you. (laughs) But, you know, the culture I grew up in, I'm Jewish, and the Jewish faith is very much about giving back and doing stuff. Common sense, and, you know, it wasn't that I was, like, hammered every week at church or synagogue, like, this is what you have to do. And you get involved with causes that matter because it affects the people that are near and dear to your heart, Mm. you know, and that's when you get the most passionate about things. Yeah, that's very true. So you have the most incredible network. Like when we Google your name, Michelle Obama comes up with you (laughs) and Iris Atfeld, Diane von Furstenberg, like people that we really look up to. So we did want to kind of end off with asking you if someone was trying to approach one of these people or even saw you out and wanted to approach you and, you know, network and form a connection. Do you have any advice for them on what the best way to go about that would be to not scare someone off? People come up to me all the time, wherever I am at events and parties, trade fairs. I walk around, people come up to me and, oh my God, you know, you're Fern, can I meet you? Or can I take a picture with you? Or I mean, just come up, be poli- be nice. Hmm. You know, be nice was one of the my mantras through my career. Be nice because... When people are looking for advice in an industry, what should we do? And I say, be nice, because you want to work around people who are nice. You don't want to spend time with divas and people giving temper tantrums. For the most part, you know, that's the easiest way is, I, you see somebody, and can I give you my card? I mean, I get a lot of cards from people that I have no, I absolutely can't use their services. But then you get things from, you run into people and go, oh, you're doing okay. I mean, I was in Copenhagen this past year for the Green Summit and, you know, a young woman came up to me and was like, you're Fern Malice. I mean, I live in Washington, D.C. I've always been a fan of yours. And, you know, she's been here to the office twice. You know, we're going to work on some projects together. You know, I mean, you just don't know where, where that comes from. So go up to people, you know, have your thoughts together and, you know, have an intelligent minute or two or 10, depending on the circumstance. You know, yes, you could reach out by email. Don't always answer everything that comes in, but with email, you kind of almost answer everything, whether or not, but people have to be resourceful. Yeah, you just got to put yourself out there. Yeah. yeah, which is actually exactly how we met you. We, like, came up and told you what big fans we were a couple of times that in Melbourne. It always works. You know, you're yeah. always flattered a little bit. <laughs> Flattery gets you over it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. And then we reconnected here, so that's great. Well, we wanted to just ask you a couple of quick fires okay. to finish off. We'll be super quick. The first one, have you ever met someone and been totally starstruck? Oh, Cause like you hang out with the coolest people. Yeah. And, like, like if that was us, we would just like lose our shit over everyone. <laughs> Has there been someone that you're like? Well, you know, I, Michelle Obama is a starstruck one. You know yeah. that met at the White House. I had a nice few minutes with Oprah Winfrey at a Ralph Lauren show, and I went up to her. She just like you said, how do you go meet people? She was sitting on the runway and people walking around, and I walked over and sat down and I said, "Hi, I am who I am. This is what I." You, did, you know, can we have a picture? Yeah. You know, I have a little quickie conversation. You know, there are a lot of interesting people. That's amazing. There. I love that your answer was Oprah. That's the best answer we've ever gotten to that question. Um, <laughs> what is the favorite item in your wardrobe? Um, actually, the most important item in the wardrobe is a full-length mirror. 
<laughs> that's the best answer and, and Steph I don't doesn't have, have one. one so I totally can I agree with that answer and I need one because it's really hard to get dressed without one do you have a favorite fashion show you've ever been to or one that like really sticks out for you that's a hard one because it have been so many so so many but there were some you know way back in the tents when Bryan Park was really kicked off there were some marvelous, marvelous shows, some great Todd Oldham shows that stay with me and Isaac Mizrahi shows and, uh, you know, a very emotional show when Bill Blass retired. It was his last show during a hurricane, you know, water leaking everywhere. I mean, this past week, I loved the show that the Blondes did at the theater with Moulin Rouge. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, it was the most fun and such a brilliant collaboration. My favorite show is the ones that's still yet to come. Awesome. And last question for you. What is your favorite place in the world to travel to? Um, you know, on one hand, I'd say it's my house in the country, but it's probably India. I've made about 60 some odd trips to India and worked on Fashion Week there for 10 years. And I love going to India. There's something when I get off the plane, I go, oh, this smells like India. <laughs> and I have a lot of friends there and I love the jewelry there and I'm wearing some of it. I love the clothing and I love just the there's a vibe there that is very special. Oh, well, I haven't been yet, so I'll have to put it on my bucket list. Oh, totally worth your bucket list. Okay. Awesome. awesome. Well, thank, thank you. you so much for making the time for us today. Oh, it's pleasure. So great Happy to sit to down do with, that you. with you. Thank you. Awesome. How epic was that? I have no doubt that you listeners have just been converted into full fern fans. We honestly could have sat there and listened to her stories all day long, but really I actually was, um, you know, pleasantly surprised at how much, how forward thinking Fern is, the way she brought up climate change and sustainability and fashion when we weren't even sure that that was something on her radar and just like how relatable all of her advice was and the fact that she was like, you know, no does not always mean no. That is obviously something that we love to tell people and so I just think that serves as a really great reminder. Absolutely. I, I mean, listening back to that, I just had the biggest smile on my face the entire time. And I think that's just so telling of Fern's energy. Like I loved being around her and then I loved being encapsulated in that again while I was re-listening in my car earlier. So if you did like this episode, we would please ask you to help us get the word out so that more people can be inspired by how to live the podcast. So you can do that in a few ways. You can leave a review or leave us five stars in our podcast app if you are feeling generous. You can share a photo of where you are listening from on Instagram and make sure you tag us at how to live and also DM us your thoughts. We always love interacting with you guys and hearing your feedback on our episodes. So please, slide into our dms so next week on the podcast we have the incredible ingrid newkirk she is the founder of peter yes that's right people for the ethical treatment of animals that peter and we had the absolute pleasure of sitting down with ingrid when we were in la recently we went to an all-day animal welfare workshop at peter hq in LA. This is going to be such an incredible episode that is going to spur so much debate and discussion. We are so excited. Here's a little snippet. Growing up, my father was a gourmand and we, he ate his way through the animal kingdom and he took me with him. And there were only two things I wouldn't eat. And one was tripe and the other was tongue because it looks like 
a tongue. Afterwards, I began to think it's not just two things I wouldn't eat. I didn't eat dogs. I didn't eat guinea pigs. I didn't eat horses. So it's all so odd. It doesn't make any sense. It's illogical. Why would you possibly object to eating the flesh of one? That's next week on the podcast. Until then, have a beautiful week and we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Na 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 na